We've been in a series of messages on the altar. And before there was ever a pandemic, God was drawing this church back to the altar. Amen. He was just getting us ready for what was about to come around the corner. That's all. And, um, you know, repentance starts in the house of the Lord. Can you say amen? And repentance happens at old-fashioned altars, uh, places where we meet God. Now, what I've learned is there are certain points that just keep coming up in these sermons about the altar that we can pretty much, as soon as I say this, we'll end up coming back around to it next Sunday, but we'll see. I believe that we can cover the rest of the points that God wants us to implement in our lives, the ones he wants to implement in our lives today in message number six. Really, in reality, we've probably barely scratched the surface of the information in the Word of God about the altars in our lives. But we're going to take a close look today uh, at Altar to Biblical History, message number six, subtitled, Worship as a Way of Life. Worship as a way of life. I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Go to Genesis chapter 26. We're going to start reading at verse 17. But before we do, we're going to pray again. Amen? We're going to pray again. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that life is in your word. We pray that you would allow that life in your word to be manifest in, in us today. Father, I thank you that because prayers have been lifted up for your people, that you've been preparing the soil of our hearts. I thank you, Father, for cleaning the pipes, letting the Holy Spirit and your word flow through me as just a conduit, Father, I pray. Anoint me to be a good, clear, clean conduit, I pray. In Jesus' name, for your word to flow through me and the message that you've given us, Father, that it would be implanted in our lives, that we would water it with the power of prayer, we would watch over it, and a great harvest of your word should come forth in our lives, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 26, begin reading with me at verse 17. We're going to take a look at Isaac's life today, and one of the reasons why we're going to take a look at Isaac's life is, uh, how many of you have ever heard of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, right? Well, I looked at all three of these guys because, you know, we looked at Noah. What was the first thing he did when he came off the ark? He built an altar, amen? We noticed about Abraham's life, and one of the messages that everywhere he went in the promised land, everywhere he went, uh, he would stop and he would build an altar. Then he would go deeper into the promised land, and he would build another altar. And then he would go deeper into the promised land, and everywhere Abraham went, he built altars. And we have a lot of information about Abraham in the Bible. Uh, the book of Galatians was loaded, loaded with information about Abraham and his faith and, and the altar building stuff and all of those exciting things. And then we know a lot about Jacob because there's a lot of uh, Genesis talks a lot about Jacob and, and so forth and so on. But in reality, compared to Jacob and compared to Abraham, there's not as much information dedicated to the life of Isaac. And we're going to look at that, though. So it's not a bad thing. Uh, somebody's got to be the one with the least information, right? And someone's got to be the one with the most information given, right? Isaac just happened to be of the three, the one that we got less information than we did about Jacob's life and about Abraham's life. But there are important reasons for it and important 
points for us to look at. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Verse 17, verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. Uh, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rohoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So what did he do? He built an altar. Oh, I love that. He built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And then he did what? Pitch his tent there. And then he did what? Dug another well. There's three. There's, I could start to preach on that the rest of the day, right? He built an altar. He pitched his tent. And then he dug a well. I mean, he got the order right there. Do you get my drift? All right, watch this. How many of you know this? I mean, this is, this is a simple truth. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis shows us the beginning of many things. Watch, watch this with me. Creation, humanity, sin, family, even nations, right? Genesis also shows us the beginning of worship. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, you don't really have to go there, but you've heard this phrase. Verse 26 says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. In the King James Version, it says to call on the name of Yahweh. People began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to worship God, it says in Genesis chapter 4, right? Wouldn't you think that we ought to be able to learn something about worship from the book of beginnings? I, I believe that we can and we will. A recurring phrase in the book is this. Built an altar. Say that with me. Built an altar. One more time. Built an altar. Over and over and over again, you see those three words. Somebody built an altar, you know? So we're looking at each of these texts as we examine how worship changes us or how we are altered by the altar. We are altered by the altar. It's where I, I kind of got that name for this series of messages. So far, we talked about the altar that Noah built after he exited the ark. Then we discovered the altars that Abraham built as he moved from place to place. And I learned just this morning, it was from place to place as he went deeper into the promised land, the land that God told him he could have, right? So, we're going to take some time in Genesis chapter 26, the passage of Scripture uh, about Isaac, and we're going to share with you some important points. For generations, the people of God, when referring to God, would refer to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The story of this family, including Jacob's son, Joseph, dominates the remaining chapters of Genesis. Have we seen in the recent messages of faith of Abraham? I classify it as simply amazing. 
I mean the faith of Abraham. Why? Because he didn't really have much before him to help him fashion his faith after. And yet he had great faith. Amen? He had great faith. God said, I like this. I, I love the way this is penned. God said, get up and go, and he got up and went. <laughs> I mean, that's the most, one of the most important things you can do in your life. If God says, get up and go, it's time to get up and went. Amen? Past tense. Go do it. Amen? Be about your father's business, which is obedience to him. Amen? God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. But at 100 years of age, Abraham still had no son, let alone descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand pebbles. He had one descendant, but that's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. I can tell you that if Ruthie and I were in that story, she never would have given her handmaid to me. <laughs> yeah, Ruthie, Ruthie, yeah, you, yeah. two thumbs, baby, two thumbs up, right? She never would have done that. But one of the most amazing stories in the Bible, there was a child born to Abraham and Hagar. And that child, we learned in the book of Galatians, was representative of the law, a child of the flesh. And later on, Abraham and Sarah had the promised child that God had told them they would have, and that was the child of the Spirit. And what did we learn in Galatians? 430 years before the law was ever given to Moses, it was manifest in Abraham's tent first. Yeah. The law was manifest in Abraham's tent, and for a while, Abraham lived with all of them. He lived with the child of grace. He lived with the child of the flesh. He lived with the mother of the child of the spirit and the mother of the child of the flesh. And that's why one day Sarah had to say she's got to go. Her and her child. See, we say, well, wow, that's good. No, no, listen to me. The law and the flesh has to be dealt with in every child of God's life and can really only be dealt with where? At the altar. It's where we get altered. Amen. So it's an amazing display of faith. Abraham walks up Mount Moriah, builds an altar, binds his son, and raises the knife before God. Before God says to him, that's enough. You know, the Old, the Old Testament, it says, now I know that you fear God. How many of you know that God knew that he feared God before that moment? Who really needed to know? Abraham needed to know, I really do fear God. I really do love God. I really respect God. And every one of us here today needed to know it. Everyone else needed to know and learn what God knew about Abraham. He feared the Lord. Amen? You know, but what about Isaac? We actually don't have as much information about Isaac as I had pointed out earlier. In the record of the Old Testament, God is consistently referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does that tell me? Even though I don't know as much about Isaac as I do Jacob and Abraham, I don't have quite as much information. This I know. This is the most important thing. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got equal billing. You understand what I'm saying? Whenever he's referred to, he's referred to as the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That tells me a lot right there alone. Amen? So I've often described Isaac's faith as quiet faith. Have you ever met anybody with quiet faith? Isaac had quiet faith. As the editors of the Daily Walk Bible point out about him, he generally did what God told him to do. <laughs> now, think about that. 
in reality. If the children of God could just say, well, I generally do what God tells me to do. How many of you know how spiritually healthy that is? Just do what God tells you to do. That's what Isaac did. He generally did what God told him to do. He wasn't perfect. Uh, how would you like that epitaph to read? He generally did what God told him to do right there on stone. That's better than I told you I was sick. You know what I'm saying? On a tombstone? Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Maybe that's one reason Isaac gets equal billing with his father and son every time God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob because he pretty much did what he was told to do. Isaac is the bridge between Abraham and Jacob. Isaac's story is, a part, uh, is in part important because he passed down what had been passed down to him. Does that tell you anything important? What are we teaching the children in our lives today? How many of us got grandchildren? Yeah. Right now, Isaac and Leah are in the airport in uh, Seattle with two of my granddaughters, and they're on their way. They'll be here. They're, two of my granddaughters are going to live under the roof of my house for a while. I don't care if it's for the rest of my life. Amen? Hannah and Maddie. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Those two girls are being raised in a home where you might as well set a table, a place at the table for Jesus, because as far as they're concerned, he lives at their home. And this is the, how we're supposed to be passing things on to the little ones in our lives. Generational education about God's Word. Amen? All right. When we consider the altar built by Isaac, he's passing down what he learned from Abraham. I've told you that there would probably be some overlapping lessons that we learn as we study the altars in the Bible, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because the altar, what happens at the altar didn't change. It didn't matter whether it was Abraham's altar or, or Noah's altar. It didn't matter. God met people there. Amen? Um, okay, when we read... That Isaac built an altar, I think we read between the lines that he was doing what he learned to do from his father. He was doing what had become a way of life. A way of life. A lot of what happened in Abraham's life uh, was repeated in Isaac's life. He could not even sin original sin. <laughs> hey, well, let's look at some of that. We've got to condense it down because we're going to have a communion service. That's not necessarily all good. He did not always trust God as he should. He did not always obey God like he should. He took matters in his own hands, even making the same mistake as Abraham. And what did he do? He pretended that his wife was his sister. Another odd story in the Bible. Another odd story in the Bible. But just like his father, he committed that same mistake. So notice these things in Isaac's story as we think about worship as a way of life. Think about this with me. The purpose of worship is passed down to the next generation. If you in this room do not love to worship God, your children are not going to learn to worship God. Your grandchildren are not going to learn to worship God. Amen? So I love, the, I love the format, that last one, that last verse we read. Isaac worshiped pitched his tent, and dug wells. Why did he do this? Why did he worship? In understanding the reasons he worshiped, we learn something about the purpose of our worship. In verse 24, let's read it again. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, 
I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Now, there is a powerful format laid out there, and we need to examine it. I don't know. I can't tell you how many years I read that passage of Scripture. And to be honest with you, for years it just didn't mean that much to me because it wasn't penetrating the void. You ever been there? You read a passage of Scripture, but it wasn't penetrating the void, right? First of all, Isaac worshiped because, first point, God met with him. And when God meets with us, his presence guides us. God met with him, and God's presence guides us. How many times have I told you in this series of messages, God will meet you at the altar? And if God's presence is with you, he will guide you. You know, most people in life don't have any peace of mind because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what God wants them to do. They don't know what their purpose is. We're here for God. It's all about him. Amen? Just as he did to Abraham, God appears to Isaac. He makes Isaac the same promise. He says, I am with you. Yes, I was with your father Abraham, but he's passed. He's gone. Now I am with you. Because of that promise, God can also say, and how many times have we heard it in the word of God? Don't be afraid. You have no reason to fear. Amen? Perhaps there are many who need to hear that same promise again today. You have no reason to be afraid because you know him. And if you talk to him and you meet with him, and an altar before the Lord of prayer can be built anywhere in your life. Amen? Man, just talk to him, all right? And when he comes on the scene, he's with you, so you no longer have to be afraid. Amen? Next point, God had met his needs. How many of you know God had met Isaac's needs? How many of you know you can't live without water, right? Did he not meet that need in Isaac's life? Did he not give him water? All right. God had met his needs because God's promises always have and always will sustain us. They will sustain you, brothers and sisters. That God knows the end of the matter we're living through right now. You just got to trust him. Amen. And think about this with me. Say, so, well, well, Brother Dennis, someone asked me the other day, what, well, what, what if it just never gets better? I'm going to tell you something. If it never gets better, Jesus is just going to come back and get us. And it will be better. Amen. Jesus just come back and get us, and we'll go be with him, and it'll just be better. Amen? I used to have a list of questions I carried around in my back pocket when I was young. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God these questions. Guess what? One day it dawned on me. You might as well burn that little piece of paper. Because when you get to heaven, none of those questions are going to matter. Things are going to be better. That's all you need to know. Amen? God had met his needs because God's promises sustain us. God reiterates the promise of blessing to offspring. In addition, Isaac had just experienced the blessing of God providing a water well. These two provisions, and let's just be honest with each other. This is the truth, what I'm about to tell you. God's meeting him and meeting his needs seem to be the two primary reasons why we worship. Now, should we not worship him just because he's God? We should, don't we? And every now and then we we, we, that hook, that good hook gets set in us and we find ourselves just worshiping him for being God. But there are lots of times we, ha we thank him for his presence. 
We thank him for his provision because that should not be left out. But it should not be our primary focus either. Amen? Two primary reasons we worship, though, is, you know, God meets with us and he meets our needs. Amen? Nothing really has changed. We worship God because he has met us. We worship him because he has met us. And he met with Isaac there. You know, I'm going to tell you that that meeting between God and Isaac where God reassures him, I, I, I was with your father, now I'm with you. That was a special meeting in Isaac's life. We don't see as many of those meetings in Isaac's life as we do in Abraham's life. But don't, does that make this one any less precious? No, I think it makes it more precious. Amen? In addition, he's promised to provide for us our daily needs. But he has also promised us our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins. And with that, the assurance of peace with God and a place with him forever. That's why we worship. The priority of worship should be passed down from generation to generation to generation. If Jesus tarries, when God heals this nation, and that's how I said, he's going to heal this nation one way or the other. Are you hearing me? God is going to heal this nation one way or the other. He's either going to heal it for us to remain here, or he's going to heal it by taking us home. Amen? And don't take that for granted. Everybody get ready. Everybody be ready. We should be living lives of readiness to be with him forever without notice. Amen? All right. Again, Isaac worshiped, pitched his tent, and dug wells. That's the order. Amen? Isaac worshiped, pitched his tent, and dug wells. I mean, he built an altar, he worshiped God, he liked it there, so he built his home there, he put his tent up there, right? And now, we got to have water, he dug a well. Worship God, pitch your tent, dig a well. Dig in, amen? Press in. He would, in this place, trust God. He was committed to the place where God had placed him, Amen? Pitching the tents and digging the wells are signs that he intended to stay. You know, all wasn't well. Everything didn't go perfect. The preceding verses already told us that there was conflict over the wells. How many of you know that that's a lack of peace going on around him? We know that later on in his life... Uh, the inverse of this chapter, if we were to read the whole chapter through, tells us that his life was made bitter by the material choices of one of his sons, Esau. Esau's life pained Isaac, hurt Isaac. Everything wasn't perfect. Is everything perfect in your life? But we serve a perfect God. Amen? Yet in these things, in these problems, in this pain, Isaac was committed to a life of worship. Worship was a way of life for him, not when things were always good, but in everything. I love the song, Blessed Be Your Name, in the words. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You know, sometimes it's easy to worship when everything is, you know, like I said, when all is as it should be, but not so easy to worship when the darkness closes in. Are you able to say, blessed be your name, all the time? It's what I call this morning the ability to worship no matter what. So what are we passing down about worship? The first point under this, what are you passing down about worship? What does your worship say to the next generation about the purpose of worship? Sometimes I've heard people criticize others for letting worship entertain them. Most of the time that comes from the traditional worship crowd saying to the contemporary, contemporary worship crowd, uh, they just want to be entertained. You know what? Sometimes that's just, it's just smoke being pumped. You understand what I'm saying? How many of you know there's glory in the traditional hymns and there's glory in the new choruses and there shouldn't be any feuding or fighting about any of it? Amen? If you think right worship is according to a style that you prefer, you're just as guilty of being entertained in worship as those whose worship style you do not agree with. You know, I can, I can show you, I, I can point specifically at some versions of worship that... I have a little trouble swallowing, all right? Um, but I also pay attention to the words. How are they reaching out to God? That makes the difference, amen? Next point. What does your worship say to the next generation about the priority of worship? There's one conversation that ought to never happen at your home on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Are you listening to me? There should never be the conversation as to whether or not, you know what, I'm going to read that first line again. Some of you aren't going to like this. So guess what? I'm going to say it anyway. Okay? Watch this with me. What does your worship say to the next generation about the priority of worship? There's one conversation that ought to never happen at your home on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Now, I understand that sometimes there are things happening and you've got to be elsewhere. Are you with me on that? But if you're at the house and there's nothing else going on in your life... That, that pulls you away for Sunday. Listen to me. There should never be the conversation as to whether your family is coming to worship. If you're at the house and, you know, you didn't plan a family day somewhere or you weren't called to a family reunion or it isn't your vacation time, if you're at the house, I think I just want to stay home today is not the answer. And I'm just telling you that from a pastor's heart. That's the truth. Now, if you need a day to rest, buy jinkies, get a day to rest, but don't get lazy. There's a difference between needing a day of rest and just being lazy. Amen? That, that was anointing to that. There was an anointing to that. That was the truth, right? There should never be the conversation as to whether your family is coming to worship. That ought to be assumed by everyone in your family. Sunday's coming. We're home. Now we're going to church. Amen? 
Next point, what does your worship say about worshiping through the pain of life? You know, uh, I, I love Tony, Tony Dungy. How many of you know who Tony Dungy is? Just a, a great Christian man that his Christianity always meant more to him than the fact that he had been a NFL football coach of two different NFL teams and won a Super Bowl or maybe two, I don't know, at least one. I guess winning a Super Bowl is a pretty big deal, right? But he wrote a book, and what I loved about it was the simplicity of the truth, and this is what we're closing with, and then we're going to have communion, right? Tony Dungy, former football coach of the Colts and the Buccaneers, talked about in his autobiography, Doing What We Do. That, that's like had a title to it, Doing What We Do. He means by that phrase that some people do this and some people do that, but you have to do what you do. Now, doesn't that sound kind of, kind of funny? It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But then he looked at his audience and he asked this question, what do you do? Child of God, what do you do? What does your family do? Man, I, I tell you, I grew up in a home. If you think I sound legalistic, I can't help that. I come to church by the grace of God, not because of the law. Amen? God loves me through his grace, and through his grace, I want to be here. And that's like giving tithes and offerings. We give by grace, not by the law. Amen? We give by grace, all right? He, says, um, he said, what does your family do? Do you worship God? No matter what. When I was a kid, we never had, it was Saturday night. Tomorrow, you got to, you know, when I was a child in the South, we had to shine our shoes, right? Had to shine our shoes, had to make sure our Sunday clothes that we wore to church that mom provided for us, they were clean, they were ready to go. Because we didn't have to say, are we going to church tomorrow? I never, I never once had to ask my mother and dad, are we going to church tomorrow? Never once. And I'm glad because that was my heritage. Look, look, if you weren't raised in a home like that, it doesn't mean that you can't start today with the people in your life. Amen? All right. If you do not worship, no matter what, you will have made a choice to worship no matter what, but it won't be effective. It won't even really be worship. Amen? It's worry. What, what's the opposite of worshiping God no matter what? It's just worry, which comes in three words, doubt, fear, and unbelief. God, forgive us. Amen? Now, listen to this. You know what I'm looking forward to? As we move forward. You know, wasn't worship just precious today? It was just precious. Thank you so much. And I thank the Holy Spirit. Amen? How many of you know that uh, Julia is a very talented woman and a beautiful singer, and Eunice is a beautiful singer. But without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you got nothing but beautiful voices and some nice little guitar playing, you know. But with the Holy Spirit, everything is made amplified. Everything's amplified, you know. And God is precious, and God does great things. Keep praying. Keep the altars going in your life because the services will just keep getting better. All right? They'll just keep getting better. We've got a long way to go yet. Amen? God's doing good things, though. God's doing great things. What have we done? What have we done in this church? We have chosen to believe that what God wants to do is bring revival. And he started it. Now we've got to let it continue.
let the revival continue. Amen.